Bibles, you want to turn to, um, let's see, Matthew, uh, excuse me, not Matthew. You want to turn to uh, Luke chapter 1. If you have the books that we've been uh, talking about, we're on paragraph 7. And this is Mary's song as a, uh, a result of her visit, visiting with Elizabeth found in Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 45. So let's take a look at this section together. Before we do, let, let's just pray a moment. Father, we thank you for this evening. It's wonderful to fellowship together, to be together, and to be in your word, and to be with you. So we pray that you'll guide and direct our uh, time. Help us to learn all that we can, and may we glorify you in the process. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. If we can just turn it down just a little bit, Kurt. Okay, here we go. Uh, first of all, this section is uh, significant because it shows the extent of Miriam's, Mary's, spirituality and knowledge of the scriptures. She quotes from scripture, as you can see, recorded or at least referenced to in our text. She'll record, she'll, she'll quote from 1 Samuel, she'll quote from the Psalms, a number of different Psalms, quotes from Job, quotes from Isaiah, Genesis, Micah. She is a woman of great faith, Mary. We don't think of her that way so much. But when you consider the angel comes to her and says that you're going to have a son, a child, he's going to be the Messiah, this is all going to happen by means of the Holy Spirit, and she is ready to embrace what God has for her because she's a woman of great faith and of great trust. And Luke records these wonderful women in the front end of his, of his gospel as he records to us uh, the faith of Elizabeth, the faith of, of Miriam here, and on another occasion we're going to see. On the other hand, uh, when we think about Zecharias, we find he's a man of not great faith, right? Because he's doubting. And, but with the women, we're seeing some good things uh, manifested. Miriam's song, by the way, is very similar to Hannah's song in the book of Samuel with regard to the birth of Samuel and how she praises God for what... Uh, God does through her in producing this great uh, man of God in response to her prayer. And so there are two parts to Miriam's song. First of all, in verses 46 to 50, she praises God for who he is and what he has done for her. So you see all these, you know, we think about this in, when one studies, studies theology, we think of these kinds of ideas under the context of theology proper, the study of God himself. And so if you look, he, she mentions, for example, in verse uh, 49, he is mighty. And what, what does he do? He does mighty things. He does great things. He is holy. When he says his name is holy, that's another way of saying he is holy. Because when we make reference to the name of God, we're really making reference to the entirety of God's character and uh, with respect to who he is. It's not just his name. His, the name conveys, says something about him and who he is in his totality of being. In verse 50, he, she makes reference to the fact that he is merciful and that his mercy is ongoing from one generation to the next. They speak about reverencing him on them that fear him. And uh, this phrase, he has showed strength with his arm. That sounds just like out of the Exodus, you know, that God 
has, uh, with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, he's brought these plagues upon the Egyptians. But she praises God for who he is and what, he's, what he has done. In verses 51 through 55, he pray, she praises God for what he will do for Israel. Verse 54, he has helped Israel, his servant. Verse 55, he'll fulfill his promise toward Abraham and his descendants uh, forever. He mentions, she mentions in verse 52, he has put down princes from their thrones in uh, defending Israel from her enemies. And then in verse 47, interesting phrase, my spirit, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, praises God. And in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So it's interesting uh, just to take note of the fact that Miriam herself recognizes her need for a Savior. And what an interesting juxtaposition or paradox that the bearer of the Messiah is in need of the Messiah for salvation. Just kind of an oddity or an odd way of thinking about it. But that's what she is telling us. She was not in a perpetuous sinless state as some uh, theologies may teach. But in verses 54 to 55, she mentions that the coming one will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 54. He has helped Israel, his servant, that he might remember mercy as he spoke unto our fathers toward Abraham and his seed forever and ever. And so her song says something with respect to the connection with the covenants God makes with Israel. And then Luke concludes the section, verse 56, by saying Mary abode with Elizabeth for three months and then returned unto her house. So shortly before she's going to deliver uh, Yochanan and give birth to Yochanan, Mary then will leave. And I guess because she still doesn't want a lot of attention, there's going to be a lot of people coming to her, the home, as the child is born. And so in these paragraphs 5 through 7 we saw three examples of a strong woman which is something Luke's gospel focuses on and then when we get to paragraph 8 we're dealing with the birth of John the birth of Yochanan and here we have a fourth example of strong women as Elizabeth again stands faithful before God and obedient to uh, God's word to name this child Yochanan or John and not Zechariah after the father. We'll see that in a minute. Also what happens here is we have a theme begins to unfold that follows through the entirety of the Gospels. And that is what happens to John as the herald of the king will see played out in the life of Yeshua the Messiah himself. What happens to the herald happens to the king is sort of a, uh, a mantra that comes up over and over again. So as we keep our eyes on the herald and see what experiences he has, we find that Yeshua sort of follows in his footsteps. Yochanan, and here is, uh, we begin to see it emerge. Yochanan is born, but in Jewish tradition, the son is not named until the day of his circumcision on the eighth day. For both Yochanan and Yeshua, they were t Mary and Elizabeth or Zechariah were both told before the birth of the child that they were to name the child the children Yeshua Jesus God is salvation or Yochanan uh, the uh, God is gracious or the grace of God they were told beforehand by the angels what to name the child normally you wait till the eighth day but they're going to name the child immediately upon their births. And so they both follow suit in that respect. 
Elizabeth stated that the child's name would be uh, Yochanan. Look at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth's time was fulfilled that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her kinsfolk heard that the Lord had magnified his mercy toward her because she couldn't get pregnant and now God has blessed her and she is able to. They rejoiced with her and it came to pass on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zecharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. So Elizabeth states the child's name would be Yochanan. Today, in Jewish tradition, one names a son after a departed family member. Now, in my case, I was named Gary. And Gary Morgan and I talked about this, and we have the very same story. So, you know, whatever you think of Gary, here's something more sane in his life. But we both... We both had the same, we talked about this, and it was so funny because actually, Gary said to me, I know why you're named Gary. And I said, you do? This is the first time I met, this is back in June, when he came up to me and he said, have you ever met a Jewish stuntman before? I said, no, I didn't. And then Roger comes up to him, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, I'm sorry, I was assigned to Gary to keep him away from you. And, uh, and I failed in my job, you know. It was just so funny. Anyway, so Gary says, I know why you were named Gary. And I said, you do? He said, yeah, because your mother loved Gary Cooper, didn't she? I said, yeah, that's exactly right. I said, how did you know that? He said, because that's why my mother named me Gary. Because everybody born in that era, although he's much older than me, though everyone born in that era, their parents loved Gary Cooper, so they named them after them. I just thought that was very insightful on his part. But like I said, it's probably the only sane thing you'll, you'll know of him. In any case, Gary. Uh, yes. Uh, this is being recorded, just as a reminder. Oh, okay. Can we back that up? You know. But in any case, my middle name, that's where this was leading to. My middle name is Joseph because my great-grandfather was so named. And so in Jewish tradition, you're generally named after a uh, departed family member. But in this case, notice what happens here in first century Israel. It was permissible to name a child after any relative, alive or dead. But the problem here is, John is not being named after a relative. It's not being named after Zechariah. And Yeshua is not being named after Joseph or a living relative either. So what happens is, the, pe- the people say that they, and his mother answered said his name will be John. And they said unto her, there is none of your kindred, verse 62, there is none of your kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father what he would have him called. That's an interesting line, too. Why would they make signs to him? The implication is that he's probably deaf, Zecharias. So, you know, because why would they have to make signs to him? Well, he's probably deaf, and they're trying to communicate with him. I mean, he can't speak, but that doesn't mean he can't hear unless he can't hear. So it's possible that 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 might be the reason why they're making all these signs to the father. But they say to him, and they made these signs to his father, verse 63, what he would have him call. So it's almost like they're going over Elizabeth's head. The wife said, oh, he's going to be called John. And they said, wait a minute, you can't name him John because there's no living relative 
who or anyone in your family that is so named. And then they say, hold on, Elizabeth. You know, and they say, Zecharias, what are we naming him? They like go over her. I think that's kind of interesting to see that kind of thing happening in this this family um, arrangement. And John, right, he can't speak, or Zecharias can't speak, so on a tablet he writes out, his name is John. And so this is another one of those instances of uh, a strong woman, a faithful woman. And he indicates, yes, Elizabeth is right, we're going to name him John. That's because what, that's what the angel told him to name him. And they, and they all marveled. And then his mouth was opened, and immediately his tongue was loosed. And the first thing he does when he can speak is to bless the Lord, and to praise him, and to give him honor. And then in verse 65, fear, reverence, awe comes upon all those that dwelt about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea as this event unfolds and this young child comes into the world. So in verse 61, this is just relating what was just said, the problem is that none of their family is named Yochanan. It's contrary to Jewish tradition. They would have named him after Zechariah, but Elizabeth indicates that no, we're naming him John, and they attempt to go over her husband's head, and uh, they made signs. And then this was an act of obedience now on Zechariah's part to say his name is going to be John. So with that act of obedience... His mouth, his tongue is loosened, and now the curse is removed and Zechariah can speak. The people certainly sense something supernatural is going on. That's why it says that they were in awe of all that had transpired. And at that point, in verse 67, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. When the scripture speaks about being filled with the Spirit, it means to be controlled by the Spirit. So I know that oftentimes when we go into certain churches or places of fellowship or whatever, and we hear about being filled with the Spirit, we have, I'm not sure what our thoughts are, but I think that oftentimes individuals uh, assume that a person now is sort of caught up in the very presence of God or something of that sort. Uh, and maybe that occurs, but the word to be filled means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So when people go out of control, act in a disharmonious way, and say, oh, but the Spirit of God's filling me, so that's why I'm acting in this you know, crazy sort of way. Uh, we need to remember to be filled means to be controlled, not out of control. And, um, and so Zechariah is so filled, and as a result, he, has, he gives a prophetic utterance. And he speaks his messages in two parts. In verse 68 to 75, he speaks about the Messiah. And then in verses 76 through 80, he speaks about Yochanan himself. So in verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. And look at the things he says. There's so much great theological reflection in these songs in the opening segment of the early life of the Messiah. It says that uh, he's visited and he brought redemption for his people. Already, Zechariah understands that Yochanan is the herald of the Messiah and the ultimate plans for redemption are now in swing. They're happening in our lifetime. It's almost like seeing the events unfold in anticipation of the Messiah's return. And it's like we are seeing the events unfold in our lifetime. 
And when he sees his own son is a catalyst in that. The herald is right here. He's my own son. He's, he is just blown away by that reality. I remember in 67 when the uh, Israelis took control of the city of Jerusalem. That that was just a phenomenal moment. In twentieth in twentieth in the twentieth century, especially later when I became a believer in the early seventies, thought back on that moment, you know, and those that were believers, they must have felt so uh, utterly amazed that they were seeing prophecy fulfilled right before their eyes. It had to be similar to 1948 when Israel, out of the ashes of uh, Nazism emerges as a state and emerges as a nation in their own homeland speaking their own ancient language and are forced to be reckoned with as over the next couple of decades they actually are not only in their land but defending themselves uh, quite capably against their enemies and then Jerusalem comes back under uh, Jewish control just as the Messiah said, you know, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Individuals, believers must have felt we're living in a time when the fulfillment of prophecy is occurring all around us. You know, And now we look back, we still are impressed with those things, but not quite the same way because they're past. They're not sort of happening right at this moment and we sort of lose that sense of excitement and awe over the fulfillment of prophecy. Years ago, I used to have, I can't find it on my shelf anymore, that's why I say years ago, but years ago I had a tract that was printed in the 1800s, and it was about prophecy. And it had, um, it was quoting from Daniel, where at the end of the book of Daniel, it says, in the last days many will go to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And in this tract, it said that even now, people are going to and fro, knowledge has increased. Even now, the trains are making their way across, you know, the United States. <laughs> and I thought, trains? As an indication of going to and fro, you know. But when you think about it, that was a major development over the stagecoach, you know, or walking or wagons, you know. Today now, knowledge being increased with the Internet, it's like, boom, there's just... You know, uh, an, an explosion of knowledge all around us. And it makes you think, can it really be even more increased? You know, how close are we to the return of the Lord? I think something like that is what Zechariah is thinking. He has visited us and he has brought about redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. And Zechariah makes reference to the Davidic covenant in the house of his servant David. You know, if that was me, I would have said, and he, and he did this in my house. But he doesn't. He said he did this in the house of David. You can see how the Spirit of God is just moving upon Zechariah. And he's giving this prophetic utterance about the coming of Messiah. So there's this connection with the Jewish covenants. As I mentioned in verse 69, there's the connection with the Davidic covenant. And we looked at the two references, did we not? In 1 Samuel 7, I think it's 2 Chronicles 17 or so. I, I get those passages confused sometimes. But these two references to God's promise to David 
that he would have a descendant sit on his throne forever and ever. He makes reference to the Abrahamic covenant in verse 73. The oath which he swore unto Abraham our father. And if you look at verses 72 and 73, you'll see this play on the names of the mother and father of Yochanan. To remember his holy covenant, Zechariah, God remembers. And the oath which he swore unto Abraham, uh, Elizabeth, God, uh, God's oath, or the oath of God. So in that phrase, Zechariah even brings Elizabeth and Zechariah, their two names, right into the um, swing of this uh, revelation and of this song. And then he makes reference to the new covenant in verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people in the remission of their sins. And that's what Jeremiah's passage of uh, the new covenant is. Is that they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The law will be written on their hearts. They will need no one to teach them. For Israel, all Israel shall be saved as Paul says in uh, the book of Romans. It says in Zechariah, ten men shall grab the coat of him uh, that is a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. You know, finally Israel as a nation fulfills the calling that God had initially called them to, which was to be those people that, uh, that nation that would reveal the uh, true God of the universe to the rest of the nations. She has not fulfilled that uh, as such because there is still unfaithfulness among Israel. There's a faithful remnant, to be sure, and we see this throughout um, the, uh, the uh, Gospels and, and the uh, life of Messiah. Um, but as a nation, Israel has not yet become uh, that light. And, uh, but in the Messianic age and in the kingdom, she will be. Uh, and then I mentioned this play on the names of Elizabeth and Zechariah. So in verse 77 of Yochanan, we read that Yochanan will be like the morning star. And uh, there is, some might argue that this is a reference to the Messiah who he would herald. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high shall visit us to shine upon them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Could be a, a look toward the Messiah, but it might also be a reference to Yochanan and his ministry of heralding the Messiah. But the idea of being the um, day spring from on high or the morning star is that it's like a new day is about to dawn and that the kingdom is near to us. Of course, um, Yochanan's message will be repent for the kingdom of heaven is imminent. It's at hand. It's at hand because the king is at hand. Wherever the king is, the kingdom is in some measure manifest. That's not to say that the messianic age is necessarily going to come into existence, but it is to say the king of that kingdom is near and upon us. So this idea of this day spring, this morning star, uh, the presence of the Messiah and all that is meant for Israel through him is about to unfold. And so, Yochanan will be the forerunner or herald of the Messiah. He will be the herald uh, of, of, the, uh, of the king. Luke's concern 
is uh, it's very interesting too how there's a balance in Luke's gospel between his concern for the Gentiles, his concern for Israel. So in verse 79, he says that when this day spring, this morning star shines, look at verse 79, it says it will shine on them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's a reference to the Gentiles who are immersed in paganism and idolatry. And when the light of the Messiah, the light of the herald of the Messiah shine, then those, them, the Gentiles that sit in darkness, uh, will now be brought into the light. But not only the Gentiles, he says in verse 79, and to guide our feet, that's the Jewish people, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the Gentiles in the darkness or shadow of death because they did not have the light of divine revelation. The Jewish people who had that, divine, that light of divine revelation were not living in accordance with it. And now when the Messiah comes, he will enable them to live out the truths of God's word. And thus their feet will now trod a path, uh, the path of peace. And so in verse 80 it says, Yochanan goes into the wilderness area of the desert in Judea and he remains some time there, at least uh, 30 years or, or so later, he will emerge as the herald of the Messiah because as Yeshua comes into his ministry, he is about, doesn't say he's exactly, but uh, the text will tell us, as we'll see in a few paragraphs, that he was about 30 years uh, of age. So we don't know how old he was, but there in the desert, he would grow up. Verse 80, he was in the deserts to the day of his revealing unto Israel. And in the desert, he would be separated from the Judaism of his day. And God would guide him as that one who would be the, <clears throat> excuse me, who would be the herald of the coming king. And when he would begin his ministry, it would be with a message which is very different from that of the Judaism of his day. And it will stand out in stark contrast uh, to it. Now, <clears throat> let me uh, get a hold of one other uh, presentation here. Hopefully this can be seen. I didn't have a chance to check this. So is that okay? Oh, that's not too bad. Okay. Let's take a look at paragraph 9 in your outline. <clears throat> the outline will say paragraphs 3 to 27, the introduction to the king. And uh, in paragraph 9, we have the announcement to Joseph of the birth of Yeshua. Verse 18, now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was on this wise. It occurred this way when his mother Mary, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child by means of the Holy Spirit. So now we switch over to Matthew's account. And the narrative is given from Joseph's perspective. And the emphasis that he places is on the virgin birth of of the Messiah. Remember his genealogy showed us why that was so because Jeconiah was one of the descendants of David his line was cursed and thus the Messiah could not be in the direct line of the of the royal kings from Solomon down through Jeconiah and that's why Mary of course comes from De uh, Yeshua is born through Mary 
who descends from David through another son of David, Nathan. And you see that in Luke's account of the genealogy. And so Matthew's point is to demonstrate that if Yeshua was directly descended from David through Solomon and the kings of Israel, he could not sit on the throne because of the curse upon Jeconiah. And thus, Matthew wants to emphasize the virgin birth as a means of bypassing that curse upon Jeconiah. Mary, on the other hand, uh, her genealogy reveals to us that she's a descendant of David, but through David's son, Nathan, and thus the curse is not applied to her. So the emphasis is on the virgin birth. And look at verse 18. This is shown by, first of all, verse 18, by emphasizing that... uh, that the conception of Yeshua occurs before Joseph and Mary come together in sexual relations and before they are uh, actually married, though after they are betrothed. And so in verse 23, to emphasize this further, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew word in Isaiah is the word Alma. It only occurs seven times in the Hebrew scriptures and every time it occurs it either must or can refer to a virgin. But at no time can it not refer to a virgin. It may not have to refer to a virgin in in the context in which it is used but it can And in some instances, it must mean virgin. But in the Greek translation, they use the Greek word, and remember the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures was completed around 150 to 200 years before the time of Yeshua in what is referred to as the Septuagint. And so those Jewish scholars that translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek had no axe to grind because Messiah would not appear on the scene of history for another 150 years or so. And when they translated Isaiah 7.14, they used the Greek word parthenos, which, is this, which literally means virgin. So they understood the passage not merely to mean a young woman of marriageable age, which you oftentimes hear, but rather had, in, had meant a woman who had not had sexual relations uh, before, But the quote of Isaiah 7.14 by Matthew also reveals to us that this ju- idea of in- interpreting Isaiah 7.14 as virgin was something that existed in the first century because we have manuscripts of Matthew's gospel that are dated from the first century. We may not have the complete gospel, but we have manuscripts from that early era. And even though we don't have manuscripts of that early era, Because of the works of the early, what's referred to as the early church fathers, guys like Origen and others, when we take the early church fathers that existed during the first century, and if we didn't have any of the scriptures, they quote the scriptures so frequently that we can actually reconstruct both the Old and New Testament just from the writings of the early church fathers. So when we look at these first century documents, they're all understanding Matthew to say virgin and not something less than that. So it does reveal at least that Isaiah was so understood in the first century. It's only later that arguments have been raised to try to water down or change the meaning of the word to avoid uh, the notion of God performing a miracle and having 
uh, a child conceived in uh, the mother's womb without any kind of sexual relations. In verse 25, uh, further we read that after they were married, Joseph did not know um, Mary or Miriam till she had brought forth a son and he called his name Yeshua. So there were no sexual relations until after Yeshua was born. And Miriam, as we'll look see later in the Gospels, had at least six more children uh, by Joseph. But the point is, he wants to emphasize the uh, virgin birth. And these are the ways that he does that. Joseph, after learning of Miriam's pregnancy, considered divorcing her privately. In verse 20, it says that he did not want to make her a public example and was considering putting her away privately or divorcing her privately. Even though they're not married, of course, in the first century, betrothal was tantamount to marriage. And the only way that that betrothal could be ended was by uh, breaking the contract. And that required a formal legal divorce. Joseph was a righteous man. He did not want her to be made uh, to be put in a bad light. And so he's thinking about divorcing her in a private manner to protect her as well as to go on with his own life. And it's while he's thinking on these things in verse 20 that an angel appears to him. And the angel appears to him and tells him uh, what he ought to do. First of all, he tells him to fulfill his marriage vow and not to divorce his, his betrothed. He says in verse 20, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take unto you Mary as your wife. Why? Because that which is conceived in her has been so conceived by the miraculous working of the Spirit of God in her body. Secondly, he tells her to believe Mary's story. And he tells her that she is going to bring forth a son and you're to call his name Yeshua. So fulfill the marriage vow, believe Miriam's story, and that all of this is according to plan, God's plan. You're to call him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass, that it might be fulfilled, as the angel is telling him, that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, The virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and he will be called and known as God with us. So, in verse 21, his name is to be Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. In paragraph 10, we have now the birth of the Messiah. Based on Luke and Matthew's uh, accounts and some of the historical records, we can actually pinpoint uh, within a couple of years when the Messiah was born. And here's how we can do that. First of all, Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. So he had to be born before 4 BC, which means Yeshua was born before BC. And that's, and that's because BC means Buddha came. So, uh, no, it doesn't. That was just a joke. It went too, too fast. Okay. But Herod the Great uh, dies in 4 BC. So he had to be born sometime before 4 because Herod's the one that's going to uh, initiate the killing of the uh, children two years old and younger in Bethlehem. When we read in uh, of the decree of Quirinius and the enrollment found in Luke chapter 2 uh, for Joseph and Miriam to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that 
was issued as early as 8 BC. So he had to be born somewhere after 8 and before 4. And now Josephus tells us that Herod had left Jerusalem in 5 BC, went to Jericho, where he never returns because it is there that Herod dies. Now remember, the Magi come and Herod inquires. So it had to be before 5 uh, BC that he was born. The Magi come to Herod before he left for Jericho, right? So by the time the Magi arrive in Bethlehem, Yeshua is almost two years old. Right? They do not appear to Messiah when he's an infant, even though you know we see all the scenes that that's how it is, but he's almost two. So taking that together, Yeshua had to be born somewhere between 7 and 6 B.C. And the, our calendars are just off a little bit because of that. And I don't know if that me if that's a, in our favor or against our favor. That makes us older than we are. So um, if you're a teenager, maybe you like that. You know, if you're not, maybe you don't. But anyway, uh, Mary and Joseph heading to Bethlehem because of the tax, which was a land tax, and evidently uh, Joseph had owned some property. Uh, that they were responsible for. Let me mention a couple of other things here. Look at verse 7 in Luke chapter 2. We're still looking at paragraph 10. It came to pass while they were there, the days were fulfilled that he should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, which again suggests more children for Miriam later. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes, we'll say a little bit more about this later, are grave clothes or burial cloths. Maybe you shouldn't say clothes, but burial cloths. Because a manger that Yeshua is placed in is not like a barn kind of thing, but rather was a cave dwelling of some sort. And so when uh, coming into Bethlehem, there was no place at the inn. They found a, a cave where, or they were shown to a cave where some animals were kept. And it was there that Messiah was born. Of course, in these caves, niches were oftentimes cut out in the side where bodies would be buried. And in preparation for the burial of those bodies, you would wrap them in burial cloths or swaddling clothes, burial cloths. And oftentimes, burial cloths would be left in these caves so as to be used for the bodies that would be placed there uh, for burial. So it appears that what happened was they went into one of these caves. We can refer to them as a stable cave because animals were being kept there at the time. And that some of these burial cloths were left lying around or were kept there. And uh, Miriam wraps Yeshua, even as a baby, in these burial cloths. So it's kind of interesting to think that his first first days in uh, our world, uh, he's wrapped in burial cloths and the last day of his life he's wrapped in burial cloths and the implication uh, we might deduce from that is that Messiah came into the world for the purpose of dying and being that sacrifice for uh, our sin and the sin of the entire world in paragraph 11 we have the announcement that is made to the shepherds in the field again this is Luke's account and, and now we're looking at Luke chapter 2. And Luke re- uh, records for us a Jewish event. 
right? So he's concerned about Jews and Gentiles, just as he had the recording of Zechariah's song, you know, regarding both the Jews and the Gentiles benefiting from Messiah's coming. And now he focuses on a Jewish event, Jewish shepherds that were in the same country in the area, in the area of Bethlehem that were abiding in the field and watching their flock of sheep. Some say that Yeshua could not have been born in December 25th because one can't keep sheep in the field in December. And so some have argued, oh, it's too cold or whatever. But, you know, one of the things that uh, the rabbis say is that sheep that were uh, prepared or uh, taken care of for temple use could be kept out in the fields I think the the circumference from the temple was something like in a 10 or 20 mile radius radius from Jerusalem. Those fields were to be reserved for sheep that would be used for the grazing of sheep that would be used in the temple for sacrifices. And uh, that puts Bethlehem within the precinct, the area of temple sheep, which further highlights the sacrificial nature of uh, Messiah's coming as a sheep that would die for our sin. And uh, in Israel, the rainfall in Israel begins, you have in the end of October through February, you have like the former rains, the early rains. You know, sometimes uh, God makes the statement that if if the people of Israel are obedient to God's law, He would bless them by giving them both the former and latter rains. The former rains hit earlier during uh, the end of October through February, the latter rains later in the spring. And if all of these rains fall on Israel, then their harvest and their crops will greatly multiply. So rainfall in Israel at the end of October through February, there's much rain. In March, the rain begins to taper off some. In April, the rain begins to die out. And from mid-April through October, there's generally uh, no rain. In December, Israel is a carpet of green. And so the idea that sheep cannot be out uh, grazing in December uh, is just not true. And that sheep are out during that time. So it is possible that Messiah, though this doesn't prove whether he was or wasn't, but it is possible that he could have been born in December, possibly even December 25th. Here's another interesting thing. Of course, Hanukkah is... Uh, the date for Hanukkah is comparable to the date for Christmas, right? Which is the 25th of Kislev. And Hanukkah is the celebration of miracles. I mentioned that when we lit the menorah this evening. It celebrates miracles. While it focuses on a particular miracle of the oil staying lit for eight days so as to give enough time for the Levitical priesthood to manufacture oil according to their tradition at that, at that time, uh, whether that miracle happened or not, uh, we don't know. It's written in the book of Maccabees. So we really don't know whether that's true or false. But nevertheless, what the rabbis focus on during Hanukkah are the miracles that God has performed for Israel. And one of the things the rabbis tell us that we're to do with the menorah when we light the candles, you're not, we're, we're told, the rabbis teach, that uh, you're not supposed to derive light from it, so you're not supposed to use it as a light source to read from it. You're not supposed to derive heat from it, so you're not supposed to like congregate around it and like warm up your hands and that kind of thing. But they say what you are supposed to do is to gaze at the flicker of the candles. 
And in the same way that sort of miraculously the, the uh, light of, of the uh, candle sort of hovers over the candle itself, never seems to touch, you know. As you reflect on that, you're supposed to think of the miracles that God has performed for Israel throughout their history. And so it's a time of thinking of miracles. And of course, the greatest miracle God has performed for Israel is what we're reading about now. The coming of the Messiah into uh, our world. The coming of Messiah to our people and through our people uh, to, to the world or for the world. So the idea might be that the celebration of the birth of Jesus in Christianity on December 25th may very well have been chosen out of um, what the Jewish people do on Hanukkah, which is to remember miracles. And thus that idea of reflecting on miracles leads us to reflect on the greatest miracle, the miracle of Messiah's coming. And the two days' dates are, uh, are comparable. In any case, we don't have enough information to know when Yeshua was born, but he could have been born on that occasion. We just don't know. But as the shepherds are taking care of their sheep, the Shekinah glory appears. It says in verse 9, As they were abiding in the field and keeping watch, Luke 2, verse 9, by night over their flock, an angel of the Lord stood by, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So the Shekinah glory appears. And an angel of the Lord also appears, and the angel has a a number of messages to them. First of all, verse 10. He tells them, do not be afraid. And... uh, I suppose angels appearing to you might cause some consternation. And so they, uh, this angel says, don't be afraid. There are good things I'm about to tell you. He says, I bring you good news. And the good news that he, he brings to them is that the Messiah has just been born and that this Messiah is Israel's Savior. He says, there has been born to you this day. I think that's kind of neat too. Born to you. You know, he's saying to the shepherds. It's one thing to say, Mary and Joseph, there is one born to you. But this is to the shepherds. So this is one born for the people of Israel and for all peoples. This child is born for you in the city of David, a Savior. And to clarify, because Israel has had many saviors throughout their history. The judges were saviors of sorts. He makes reference to the fact that this one is the Messiah. And not only is he the Messiah, but he is the Lord. And so already we're getting intimations of his uniqueness as the divine Son of God. He is the Messianic Savior that is to come. And then he he tells them, this is the sign to you. This is how you're going to know who this child is. You're going to find this child wrapped in swaddling clothes, number one. And number two, you're not going to find him in one of the private homes. You're going to find him in one of these caves, one of these stable caves. So that should make it easy. You know, just go from cave to cave and you'll you'll find the right one. And uh, so the sign was means something out of the ordinary. And then as this angel tells them that, Tells them that he'll be wrapped in burial clothes and be lying in a major, not in a private home. And um, the reason why he's in the stable, uh, this cave, is because there's no room in the inn. And so the Messiah was found wrapped in the burial cloth 
on both the first and days of his life mention this. And that's because his purpose was to die. And then as they are contemplating this, suddenly, out of the blue, there's a multitude of angels that appear in the skies. And they are praising God and saying. So some say, you know, the angels did not sing. Well, in this context, I guess that's true. Uh, They were saying. It would have been nice if it said that they were singing. But I suppose if they were saying it with a melody, they were then singing. And uh, so, hard to say exactly, but it does say that they were saying. And they were giving praise to God. And here's the message that they give. First of all, they, they attribute glory to the Lord on high. And secondly, they announce peace to those uh, in whom God is well pleased. So that peace is extended to those who embrace the coming Messiah. And in doing so, they give pleasure to the Lord because this is his son that he has now brought into uh, the world. So they make this proclamation that they did not say they sang, but that they said, uh, although, listen, I would make a big deal about this. That is what it says. And they were saying. So in verses 15 through 20 then, this is the first recorded Jewish worship of the Messiah, and that by uh, shepherds in the field. But interestingly enough, it was initiated by the Shekinah glory. It was the Shekinah glory that uh, shone round about them and then leads them, or at least in the context of which the angels appear, and the angel uh, gives them the uh, indicators as to where the Messiah would be that then leads them to worship him when they find him. And so uh, it says, and when they saw it, so the shepherds came, verse 15, let us go unto Bethlehem, see the things that have come to pass, And they went with haste. So they went quickly. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe in the manger, just as the angel had said. When they saw him, they made known concerning the saying which was spoken to them. And all that heard it wondered at the things which were spoken to them by the shepherds. But Mary continues to ponder uh, these things in her heart. And the shepherds returned. They glorified and they praised God for all the things that they had heard and seen even as it was spoken to them. Later, as Mary ponders these things in her heart, later she's going to reveal those thoughts to Luke, who is capturing those ponderings uh, in his gospel as we are reading them uh, together. In paragraph 12, uh, we have the circumcision of the Messiah. Again, here's that overarching theme. Theme: What happens to the herald happens to the king. Like John, though Joseph and Miriam know what the name of the Messiah is to be, they do not officially give him his name until eight days after uh, his birth at his circumcision. When we think about circumcision, verse 21 of Luke 2, when eight days were fulfilled for circumcising him, his name was called Yeshua, which was so called by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And uh, there are two contexts in which circumcision is made reference to. We won't go into all of this, but suffice it to say that with respect to the Abrahamic covenant, it was a sign of, uh, of their Jewishness, their being a descendant of Abraham, and then later Isaac and Jacob. This is something that was 
um, the Jewish people only were obligated. With respect to the Mosaic law, circumcision is then restated. And Gentiles that would convert to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would submit to circumcision. And as a result, it signified their submission to the law. That's why Paul in the book of Galatians is going to argue that in light of faith in Messiah, Gentiles should not be encouraged to be circumcised because it's an indicator of submission to the law, not faith in God. On the other hand, he will not dispute over whether or not Jews, Jewish believers ought to have their Jewish children circumcised. In that instance, he would be supportive of that. And here's an interesting thing. In the book of Acts, for example, he does have Timothy circumcised because Timothy has a Jewish mother. In the case of Titus, he refuses to circumcise or to have Titus circumcised because he is a Gentile. So it would be appropriate for Jewish believers to have their Jewish male children circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant as a sign of their Jewishness in association with the covenant, but not in the context of the Mosaic law, which law has been uh, complete and fulfilled in the Messiah, and no longer are we under its obligation or submitted to it. So let me say this one more time. When we think of circumcision, you cannot think of it only in one dimension, such as the dimension of the Mosaic law. Because circumcision is connected to two covenants of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. With respect to the Abrahamic covenant, that precedes the Mosaic law. So the circumcising that Abraham is engaged in has nothing whatsoever to do with the law because the law is not even a given yet. Moses is not even alive. So it precedes the law. So circumcision with respect to the Abrahamic covenant is an appropriate thing even for Jewish believers today because it's a sign and symbol of their Jewish identity and their association with Abraham and the promises of Abraham. On the other hand, circumcising with regard to the Mosaic law is something that is not uh, appropriate because there it's a symbol not of one's Jewishness but of one's submission to the law. But we are no longer submitted to the law. Why? Because Messiah has come and brought an end to the law. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. That, that in Messiah the law has come to an end. It has been fulfilled in him. And therefore we are not obligated to obey the Mosaic law. But the Abrahamic covenant precedes the Mosaic law. And as a sign of one's Jewishness, circumcision on the eighth day would be an appropriate thing that... Uh, we would uh, obey. So Messiah's death brings the Mosaic law to an end. So there's no reason to practice circumcision with respect to the Mosaic law. On the other end, Paul warns, if you do submit to circumcision with respect to the law, you are obligated to keep the whole law, not just bits and pieces as you would like. So, and in some respect, that's an impossibility because part of the law requires certain sacrifices and because the temple's destroyed, you can't offer those sacrifices. So Paul's whole point is the law is fulfilled in Messiah and we are no longer under its condemnation or responsible for, it, for its uh, fulfillment. Messiah's death brings the Mosaic law to an end for both Jews and Gentiles. But the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant. And it requires Jewish believers to circumcise their children on the eighth day in association with their relationship to Abraham and 
their being a part of that covenantal bond. So circumcision, here's another interesting thing. Circumcision reveals the faith and obedience of the parents, not the child. The child's only eight days old. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because oftentimes there's a comparison made between circumcision and baptism in certain churches. And often the argument is made, baptism uh, supplants circumcision or takes the place of circumcision. But this is, uh, you know, a wrong way to interpret the scripture. Circumcision, and here are the reasons why. Circumcision reveals the faith and obedience of the parents, not the children. On the other hand, baptism reveals the faith and obedience of one being baptized, not the parents. Right? So the individual uh, steps. So there's a difference. And so to make that association of baptism with circumcision, I think, is an error. Also, baptism is not the antitype of circumcision, but rather baptism shows the faith of the one being baptized. But the antitype for circumcision is not baptism, but the circumcision of the heart, which is what Paul, an expression Paul uses in the New Testament. So, paragraph 13. Let's see if. What, what time do we have? Quarter to nine. Can we do one more? And then, I'll, and then I'll let you go. Or if, the, if there's a, a large number of you that's saying, yeah, I gotta go home. <laughs> you know, I'll call it. One more? Okay, let's do, let's do one more. And then we'll pick up with the Magi uh, in a couple of weeks. So this is, might be a good place to stop. These events in paragraph 13, now we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. These events occur 40 days after Yeshua is born. Now, in the Mosaic Law, and they're presenting uh, Messiah in the temple. And this is where they encounter Simeon and Anna. This is one of my favorite uh, moments in all of the, the life of Messiah. But uh, these events occur 40 days after Yeshua is born. According to the Mosaic Law, a woman who gives birth to her girl is unclean for 80 days, and then is to undergo the cleansing process that is spoken of in the scripture and is embellished in Jewish tradition. If she gives birth to a son, she is unclean for 40 days and then undergoes the process of cleansing. Because Yeshua is Miriam's firstborn son, she also goes to the temple for two reasons. Number one, the purification of the mother after the 40 days, and that's why the text tells us, verse 22, when the days of the purification according to the law of Moses was fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law, in the, in the law of the Lord. Every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So a second thing, uh, an, an offering then is provided, has to be provided, which is a pair of turtle doves or two young uh, pigeons. And that's provided for those that are too poor uh, to provide a lamb uh, sacrifice. So one, there's two of them. One was used for a sin offering. The other was used for a burnt offering. And these offerings reveal the economic status of Joseph and Miriam. They're very poor. And that's why when the Magi come from the east and provide gold, incense, and myrrh, those are very valuable uh, objects. Gold, of course, and... Uh, the incense and the myrrh, they're very valuable. And they're going to be very practical because later Yeshua or an angel is going to tell Joseph to bring Yeshua to Egypt. And so how is that going to be financed? Well, by these gifts that the Magi bring. 
In any case, this offering reveals, the Magi haven't appeared yet, so this offering reveals how poor they are. Joseph and Miriam were extremely poor, for only those in such a state were permitted to make this substitute for a lamb offering. And the prophets uh, indicate that the Messiah would come on the scene of history at a time when the family of David would be uh, in a poor status. So Isaiah 11 says that a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. It's like the Davidic dynasty has been lopped off. And there seems to be no hope that a king will yet arise for Israel. And then all of a sudden there's this shoot, a very tender shoot, tender shoot, that uh, appears. And that is symbolic of the coming of Messiah at a time when things are not good for the house of David. And specifically for this couple from the house of David who are in dire straits. And secondly, she goes to the temple uh, for the, redem- the, pr- the responsibility or the, the legal requirement of redeeming the firstborn. According to the Mosaic Law, you can see this in Exodus chapter 13, Leviticus chapter 12, the firstborn of humans and animals belong to the Lord. And so those animals that were clean were offered. Those that were unclean, there would be a substitute sacrifice. And the firstborn of males had to also be uh, redeemed. And this was done by paying uh, five shekels according to Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. Now then, Luke then gives us a Jewish and Gentile perspective on the presentation of Yeshua uh, at the te- at the temple. So first of all, we have Simeon who appears. Simeon is a member of the faithful remnant. It says that, uh, and behold, there was verse 25, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was number one. Notice righteous and devout. He was a member of the faithful remnant. Remember that when we speak of the faithful remnant. Israel, the Jewish people referred to as Israel, are made up of those that are unfaithful or faithless, and then a segment of Israel is faithful. They're referred to as the faithful remnant because they are a minority of the entirety of the people of Israel. Simeon was a believer and thus a member of this faithful remnant of Israel. God revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. When he sees this 40-day-year-old baby, he recognizes the fulfillment of this promise. That's really wild to think about. But this infant is brought, and he knows instinctively, this is the Messiah, and the promise that God has made to him is being fulfilled. Notice also, one of the things that has always uh, intrigued me about Luke's Gospel, or Luke's writings is the emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. In this one section alone, I mean, we could see a a number of them, but in this one section alone, look what it says of Simeon, verse 25. It says, He was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And over and over, there's this emphasis on the work of the Spirit of God with regard to Simeon, but all throughout Luke's writings. I find it intriguing because Luke is a physician. Physicians are like detectives. They're concerned with the empirical, 
what they can see, what they can evaluate, what they can touch. But in this instance, he's making reference to the work of the Spirit of God. He must have been particularly intrigued by that which he cannot put under a test tube, as it were, you know. That kind of thing that's just opposite of what he's trained, his profession he's trained as. And uh, so I just find it fascinating that of all the writers of Scripture, over and over again, this physician is captivated by the work of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. Well, Simeon, once he sees the child, he's now ready to die. He says, um, he came in the temple and then he saw this child, he blessed God. And he says in verse 29, Now let your servant depart, O Lord, according to your word in peace. For my eyes have seen your, your salvation. This is a little play on words because the name of the child is Yeshua, which is salvation. And the noun for salvation is Yeshua, and it has a kamate at the end of the word Yeshua instead of just the ayin. So it's, it's, you can take it two ways. For my eyes have now seen Yeshua, or my eyes have now seen the salvation that you're providing. Yeah, so it's sort of a play on words as he looks at this promised one. He makes reference to him as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. There's his emphasis again on the impact the Messiah will have on the Gentile world. He will be a light to the Gentiles because they were ones who earlier we read are sitting in darkness. And now he's going to bring them out of darkness into light. But not only the Gentiles, he is also the glory of thy people Israel. He is the true Israelite. He is the true Israel. It's what uh, Yeshua says in John chapter 15 where he says, I am the true vine. doesn't mean I'm the, vi- the true vine, the vine that is opposed to false vines. It means I am the ultimate vine. I am the one and only vine. It's sort of like when he's referred to as the true tabernacle in the book of Hebrews. Not that there's a false tabernacle. Or when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. It doesn't mean as opposed to falsehoods. He means he is the ultimate manifestation of God in our, our midst. And so he's the true one. The one that we should place our faith in. And so he says, the glory of thy people Israel, a light to lighten the Gentiles. So Simeon now says something. He's the true Israelite um, to bring glory to his people. So Simeon now says something negative to Miriam. Those are the good things. A light to the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. But then he says the child will be a new point of division among the Jewish people. Verse 34. Behold, this child set for the falling and rising up of many in Israel. So he will create division. And we see this, you know, those of us who are Jewish, we see this over and over again. Maybe our parents would not embrace Messiah. Why? Because he's a point of division uh, in Israel. Some of us are members of the faithful remnant. We believe. We, are, we trust the Lord. And we are enamored like Simeon is. Others, like the Pharisees, Sadducees, oppose him. Others are just indifferent to him. But he becomes a, a line of demarcation. Faith in him reveals one's association with the living God. That's why Messiah will say things like, If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he spoke of me. That's like saying, If you really believed in God, you would believe in me because he has sent me. And so he becomes the defining element in faith. 
or in the lack of faith. And that's what Simeon tells Miriam, that this child will now be, be a cause for division among the Jewish people. And there will be those who will be affected in rising up. They will have faith and they will uh, experience an arising. And how true that is, that when we've come to faith, we realize something all new has just happened. Our life is in the process of being transformed. Some of it has just occurred immediately, others over time. There's a rising up, an awakening from the dead that begins to occur. Uh, for others who disbelieve, there's a falling. And there, that falling ultimately will end in some kind of judgment. Messiah will be a stone of stumbling, in other words, and a rock of offense. Miriam's heart, he goes on to say, will be pierced. A sword will pierce your own heart. And that because she will be there seeing him suffer in the most agonizing of ways. She'll be at the foot of the tree and uh, the cross. And she will hear those words. A mother, you know, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. As he passes Miriam on to John for him to take care of his mother. And she's going to see the utter agony and death of her son. So a sword will pierce your heart and her heart will be pierced even deeper when she sees her son on the cross. Yet the death of Yeshua is essential for the hearts of many to be revealed and for salvation to be imparted. Um, now it looks like some of my things on Anna uh, I didn't get on for some reason. But let me just t point out a couple of things here. In verse 36, we have the second character, which is Anna, or Hannah. Number one, there are a number of things that are said about her in verse 36 of Luke chapter 2. First of all, she's a prophetess. So the idea of women prophets, uh, we see this in Scripture. We see it in the, later in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant. But we see here that Anna was a prophetess. Further, she's referred to as the daughter of Phanuel, and she's of the tribe of Asher. The notion that there are lost tribes of Israel, the ten lost tribes, obviously is a fallacy, because Asher is one of those ten tribes in the north. So the idea that when the, uh, the Assyrians took captive the northern kingdom of Israel... And thus there were ten lost tribes. Well, Asher was among those ten tribes. But obviously this, it's a misnomer to think of them as lost because Luke was able to note what her tribal identification is or was. And thus she's from the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity and she had been a widow for 84 years. So she was over 100 years old. She was a widow for 84 years if she was uh, married when she was young at 15 or something like that, that would put her upwards of uh, over 100 years or so. And notice what else is said about her. She did not depart from the temple. She worshipped with fastings and uh, supplications towards God night and day ongoingly. She was a woman of great prayer and had a, um, a uh, devoted a devout life and lived as unto the Lord. And coming up at that very hour, notice in verse uh, number 6 and verse 38, she, give, she gives thanks unto the Lord. And this is really a neat phrase. Uh, in the seventh point here that I have, verse 38, she spoke of him to all 
that were looking for the redemption of Israel. Notice again the focus on the, on the faithful remnant. Those looking for the redemption of Israel, she was already telling them uh, about because she recognizes, like Simeon, this is Israel's Messiah. All of this swirling around a 40-day-year-old child. And it's just amazing as God brings his son into our world in order to provide life and redemption. And at the very front end of his life, there are just remarkable insights into who the Messiah is and what he's going to accomplish in behalf of Israel and behalf of the Gentiles as well. Well, listen, let's pray. And then those of you that need to go, you can. And if there are some questions, we can discuss those briefly as well. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you that on this first night of Hanukkah, we can focus our attention on the light of the world who has come into our world to provide us with life everlasting. On this occasion of reflecting on miracles, what a miracle it is that Messiah would be born of a virgin, that Messiah would be born so as to die, and that Messiah, by Messiah's death, His Spirit can dwell within each and every one of us who entrust ourselves to Him. May none of us here in this room miss out on the great miracle You have provided for us and the great gift of life that You're willing to give to each and every one. May we all be considered among this faithful remnant of individuals who love you and honor you and who are redeemed by you. And then lastly, O Lord, thank you for giving your life a ransom for many. And thank you for winning our hearts unto you. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.